0: So hello everyone, I am excited to introduce you to our guest on our show today. He is actually going to be one of the presenters at the Afterlife Awareness Conference. We're going to give you a 10% off code at the end of this conversation, so if you are interested in getting a discount on the live stream, we will have that for you. So I would like to introduce to you Reverend Peter Baldwin Panagor. And get this, he is a two-time near-death experiencer. Um, He died of hypothermia while ice climbing, um, and also, again, from a heart attack. He is also an author, a minister, executive producer, writer, storyteller, a variety of different things, but I'm going to have him tell you more about all of the stuff that he is doing. I had the opportunity to read his book, Heaven is Beautiful, How Dying Taught Me That Death is Just the Beginning. So, Peter, welcome.
1: Hi, April. Thanks for having me on. I'm, uh, I'm psyched to be here.
0: Yeah. So so you have died twice and come back.
1: <laughs> yeah. Um, wow. Yeah, I, that's true. And it's uh, changed everything in my life. It, the second time I, I died was fairly recently, 2015, and I'd been living with the first one since 1980. And I spent most of those 30 years integrating here. And then, you know, to take another trip, I, I didn't expect it to... Uh, give me the twist that it did and have to reintegrate a little bit more again. So that's been interesting the past few years. I've been readjusting once again.
0: Yeah, well, maybe you can share with our listeners just a little bit about um, maybe what that reintegration is feeling like and give them some background um, information about your first near-death experience. And, you know, that it connects to the book that I read, Heaven is Beautiful. And then uh, tell us a little bit more about what happened in 2015 and what this reintegration process has been like for you.
1: Uh, well, I was a college student. I was a University of Massachusetts Uh, English major who went to Montana State University in Bozeman for a year on the National Student Exchange Program with the intent of spending as much time in the wilderness as I could and so I did. uh, Lots of trips into lots of different ranges, uh, backpacking and exploring the Montana and and then Alberta and British Columbia wilderness and in that March of 1980, during spring break, instead of going back to Boston to be with my family, uh, from whom I was escaping, not that they were bad, but that my sister had um vanished, run away from home when I was a kid and caused uh, lots of emotional trouble in my house with um, mostly my mom and my dad and, of course, with all the other siblings. And so I was escaping. I I didn't want to be there. So instead, I decided to go. And and Andrea, my sister who ran away, plays a key role in, in my death. That's why I bring this up. And so I didn't want to go back to Boston. I went to the outdoor club. I found a partner and we went backcountry skiing for eight days, snow caving in British Columbia, and then did an ice climb uh, in Alberta and Banff Provincial Park, which is pretty far north. And it was March and Tim was a lead climber certified and I was a climber and a backpacker, but I'd never climbed ice, uh, making the story short here. Um, I couldn't gather all my gear, and so I was short one ice axe, and so instead of using two ice axes for the ascent with crampons and ropes and ice screws, it's a serious, it was a serious climb on a world-famous place called Lower Weeping Wall, and there were a dozen, I guess, other teams there that morning. Anyway, I... Uh, made the ascent and Tim and I agreed to make the ascent w- short of equipment and I used an axe and a hammer. and the hammer is not a climbing tool per se. it's a it to use it to put in well to chip ice, it's a hammer and also to uh, insert and extract these long tubular ice screws that the drill into the ice and use the hammer as a lever. And uh, I used it as my climbing tool, which meant that, I could not rest whichever arm was using that tool I had to always hold myself in place and you can imagine gripping something for six hours that without rest that your forearm burns out and so our climb our ascent was much slower than everybody else's and we arrived at sunset uh, when we should have uh, been down and leaving as were the last of the teams that had climbed that day and we were in trouble we knew it immediately uh, the sun set the temperature dropped i don't know what it went down to but uh, it was it was very cold and the we were very cold we were dressed for a climb not for the night we didn't have overnight gear with us hypothermia set in rapidly and I can describe to you, or you can read about them yourself, what those steps are, but assure you, we went through all of them as the night went along. And it's starting with clattering jaw. And that was a cartoon-like experience, only it was scary as hell, uh, because we knew what kind of situation we were in. So making a long story of uh, desperation short, we decided that we were going to die, and we, if we stayed where we were, we were definitely going to die. Um, and so we decided to try to get off the mountain. And if we were going to die, we were going to die fighting for survival. And so um, we made our trip across the mountain and down, which was uh, the, highlight, the highlight of the night. I will toss this in. The highlight was uh, when the rangers showed up way down in the distance in the valley and flashed his lights because we didn't sign out of the wilderness book into which we had signed earlier that eve, that day. And when you sign in and you say you're coming out and you don't come out, they know you don't come out and they come looking for you. So halfway down, um, when hypothermia was progressing, our, our brain ceased functioning well and we weren't making a good headway because our coordination was gone as well. And plus our feet were frozen, our hands were frozen, I had frostbite everywhere. Um, we made it to our last rappel and we were about 150 feet up and the ranger had hung with us all night he flashed his lights and off he went what he didn't know was that the rope had become jammed up around a corner on the rock because we had left the ice on on the very first pole the rope became jammed and i couldn't free it and we were stuck and Tim was to my left, my partner, and we were. There were these iron pins with rings, with um, straps attached to them that we clipped with carabiners onto our harnesses. And Tim was to my left, and those those straps were permanently in the mountain. They're still there. I, I visited back in uh, 2016 for the first time, and uh, anyway, uh, hypothermia progressed to the place of heat in the body, or so it feels like you get hot. And I, I, I should let the audience know that I'd been on the National Ski Patrol for since I was a sophomore or freshman in high school. And I worked this, that particular year at um, Bridger Bowl in Bozeman, a great ski area. But I, I was trained as a first responder, and I knew what was going on with us. And so when I unzipped my jacket, I did it with the knowledge that I was hastening my own death. Uh, Even though I knew it was irrational, I did it anyway because I was sweating and hot. And so that uh, began... The next step, which is falling asleep. And meanwhile, I'm trying to pull the rope free and it's it's tied to my harness on one end and the other end is dangling off in space. I can't reach it. Tim can't help me um, because of his distance from me and our hands are frozen. We're afraid we're going to lose the rope. And if I untied it from my harness and so I began to fall asleep and I would I would collapse and smack into the rock, I had a helmet on, I'd smack into the rock with my head and wake myself up as I, um, or rather wake up because I smacked my head. And that, that happened a bunch of times. And I remember thinking, I'm going to die here. And looking out at the ice fields, this is all along the um, ice fields parkway. And I can, cause the moon was up by this point and we could see with sort of color. And I had a piece come over me. And uh, recognition of my situation, I, I'd been struggling and driving all night long with, every, with, with willpower I didn't even know that I had um, or could access. Uh, it was sort of going, and I know that this isn't good science, but, to, but I, I don't know how else to say this, but it's like accessing my reptilian brain um, for my sense of survival. I became a singular driving piston toward one goal of living. And I just gave up. I recognized uh, my situation, I thought about my parents, they were going to lose another child, which is what happened, you know, my my sister ran away, my mom had a breakdown, um, lasted 10 years, and this was going to destroy them. But I couldn't do anything about it. And so I fell asleep and i cracked my head and i stood back up and as i stood up i saw my peripheral vision go like uh, a stage performance of fade to black of the spotlight that fills the entire stage and rapidly comes down to the center of the face of the of the monologue on the stage and the person is alone and then it goes to black and that's what i saw i and i swung my head around but it was on the inside of me i was watching this fade to black crush in on my eyes and i swung my head and i looked at the distance and i looked at the rock and i looked and and the light went out and I felt myself collapse, and I thought as I collapsed, I'm not asleep because I'd just been. You know, every time I collapsed when I was asleep, I lost consciousness, and but this time I had consciousness, and so i, I was thinking to myself, what's going on? Why am I not asleep? And why didn't I feel hitting the rock? Why? What's you know? I was confused, and and but I was clear of thinking, which was. Strange because my brain was frozen and my, I hadn't been thinking rationally for hours and I, and suddenly the, I could see like in front of me, this infinite distance of a darkness that, that was vaster than anything, anything I recalled. And from a very far distance, there was uh, an intelligent entity. Uh, and everything I say from this point on is metaphor or symbol. And it's uh, a place, I'm headed toward a place of non-being where there are no more things. And so words are things. And so they can't, like you see a stop sign and the stop sign means one thing. It means stop. Well, metaphors and symbols are different. They talk about things that you can't say. Or you can't say directly, or you don't want to say directly, but that's not my case here. That's a metaphor. I I want to say this directly, but I can't. And so this intelligent intellect of uh, consciousness rushed toward me from an infinite distance at at speeds of thought faster than light. Uh, And it and It became larger as it approached and filled my entire visual horizon, but it was also simultaneously localized in front of me as if I could see sort of like an amorphous intelligence that didn't have any substance to it. And it communicated to me telepathically, I'm taking you. And I said to it, no, you're not. And I took this willpower that I had reptilian willpower to uh, defend myself. And it was no strength at all. And I was plucked from my being and transported through this very wide and narrow at the same time, short and long, at hyperspeed tunnel. And I popped out. I was carried. I was drawn. I was communicated. Um, uh, And it happened so fast. And I popped out into what I can only describe as a greater infinite illuminated darkness that that i could see in every direction at once i was like a, a molecule or a or a photon inside of uh, uh, the entire universe it was as if all the stars were taken from the universe all the galaxies were removed and it was just me inside of this bubble of darkness but i could see in every direction and i could think and i and i was unafraid i was in uh, wonderment but i was content and i thought to myself this is who i am this is me how did i not know this is me and i felt gigantic but i i looked at myself and i ha- i was no thing there was there were no molecules there was no energy there was there, there was no matter i was another thing my truer self and as i stayed there thinking i heard i i tell this i tell this story it all seemed to happen at once this place of timelessness where all time existed where where now was all there was but now contained all of time and and a, a portal-like opening door gateway appeared uh, in the darkness near me, and I could see through this passageway a great distance that that was a darker tunnel than the darkness I was in, and I was meant to travel that route. And I and it was covered by this sheen, this uh, transparent, translucent, simultaneously, and in even sort of. Now that I'm thinking, I, it's even had a solidity to it. And so I touched this thing with my being. And as I touched it, I felt the living flow of life of all being. And I was in and I heard this voice that had no sound and no words call my name, only it wasn't my name, Peter. Peter seemed to have become this sort of superficial uh, micron layer over the eternal length, depth and breadth of my everlasting soul that I could see was called into being by this name that i could not say with words and still can't and it was the the calling of the essence of my being and i and i was at the origin of myself like like a photon of a singular singular photon of being created and i knew that i was created creature I knew that I was in the presence of Creator, uh, whose name was unpronounceable. And I also knew that I could see the long tail of my soul and other sort of um, bisections of it, in these thin, thin micron layers that could have been other sorts of uh, sheathing selves, other sorts of... um, uh, incarnated humanity of me but i couldn't see what they were but they were so and they all seemed to happen simultaneously it wasn't like al- although my tale was everlasting and long and there was a sense of distance and and time with it there was no time and no distance simultaneously i i can't tell you any more than that, but I, I heard my name called, and I knew that I was known. It was like uh, the the knower of all things knew everything about me, and said to me, "I know you. I know everything about you. There's nothing hidden from me." But there were no words. It was an instant understanding. And I, all of myself was revealed. No hidden dark shadow corners where I stuffed down whatever little misdeed I did as a boy. Um, I all was illuminated and I was utterly naked and I was naked in a way that makes, um, being naked in front of, uh, your classmates in your dream <laughs> that everybody seems to have, like that was nothing that those, I was, utterly, utterly seen, and I'd always been seen, and there was nothing about me that had ever been hidden. And I went through uh, I went through a hell of my own creation. and the hell of I went through was to suffer. All of the pain I'd ever given to everyone in my entire life in like a sequence, but magnified 10,000 times. It turns out that that the pain that I gave away that was little turned out to be 10,000 times bigger. And I suffered the pain as my victim felt it times 10,000 only. I felt their pain juxtaposed to my seeing my rationalizations or emotional choices uh, for the pain that I caused. And that included intentional pain that I meant, you know, I had sisters after all, and you know, we, <laughs> right. So like, right. Um, so it, and, and, and also all the unintentional pain I'd caused too. And my sisters actually featured prominently in this because, you know, they were my closest friends in my life as a child. And, but they were not alone. And, and I judged myself. I self-judged. Meanwhile, the voice that has no sound was speaking inside of me. And it was sort of, I should describe this a little bit. It was like, there was this, um, I don't, I, I don't want people to lock onto these ideas as if they were physical manifestations, but it was like a speaker. Um, You know, a a studio monitor speaker was inside and outside my soul representing and being the oneness of all love, but also that was just a little tiny portion of it, which was overwhelming to me, but I was in the middle of infinity and it was all infinity, but there was this sort of, um, I can talk to you even though you're so much less than me situation going on here and as the creator to the creature and so i heard inside me without words i love you i made you you're my beloved i've always loved you from the moment that i called you into being speaking your name i have loved you as you are as created i know these things about you i love you and it seemed to me that all the love that i'd ever given away in my life and all the love that I'd ever been given in my life, from my parents and my siblings and my my friends and my dog, all of that love was gathered inside of me before I left, and that became ten thousand times greater in its value. And it was as if I saw myself through the, the 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 lens of love that I carried with me, enabled me to see the the or hear. Or understand the love that I was given undeservedly, just because I was a created creature, and I was forgiven. And you know, I, my my studies after um, continued to this day, and I've been reading uh, Catherine of Genoa, and she describes her mystical experience of divine union, not a near-death experience, um, as going through the purgative fire of divine love. And that's a really great description for me. The, 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 the fire that cleansed me that that melted the that stripped all the suffering I brought with me, which is completely unneeded. It has no use where I was going. It was valueless. but it was the the love that 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 the lens of love that I carried with me allowed me to see and to hear the lens of love of forgiveness that that cleansed me. And then I was beloved and I was infilled with this. Uh, A oneness of being that was apportioned to my size, and I was gigantically bigger than I'd ever been as a human being, but there was so much oneness that infilled me that a single more proton would have caused me to extinguish and explode but this oneness was this combination of all these things we keep separate here there and i can't even list them i'll try here i get because there's just so much there's love and beauty truth knowledge understanding wisdom intellect communication joy awe, bliss and the, it's, it's all, these, all these virtues of human living, but they're not separate. It's like, it's like charity is love, and joy is love, and beauty is love, and hope is love, and intellect is love. All these, all these separate things were all this oneness of being in love, and I was infilled with it. And I then said, am I dead? And the voice said, yes, you're dead. I said, well, I didn't go through the door yet. I can't go. I don't want to go. And the voice said, I want you to stay. Come stay with me. Come be here. Come be here. Why don't you want to come? And I said, my parents, my sister, my broken mom, their suffering that I would cause would be great and the voice said to me in the way that you now know that i love you and i I gotta try to describe love the the comparison i I, i've been searching my whole life to try to find some sort of comparison for this it's like if if you're familiar with the 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 concept of the size of the of our universe 13.7 billion light years expanding vast space between galaxies that's not empty space. There's some dark matter, uh, dark energy that exists there that's pushing against gravity. It's this, this huge, huge, enormous amount of matter and energy. And then you get throw in the multiverse idea that there was not the only universe that there are other universes that are as big as this and that they're infin, infinite in number. That love was that size, infinite in number, vast beyond comprehension. And I was um, a moat. I was infilled with a moat of this love, almost to bursting. It was it was so much love that I knew that I understood that all my life had been the wink the length of my life had been the wink of an eye, and that my 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 beingness was not earthly, my beingness was beloved. That's what I was, that's who I am. And all of that love was available to me. I was I was bathing in it. I was living I was in bliss beyond expression. And I and the and the wink of a thought I was carried and saw all of earth all at once. And I could see all 7 billion human beings, everyone up close and far away. And everyone's doing everything that human beings do. They sleep, they make love, they have arguments, they go to war. They make, you know, just everything. And everybody is covered by a veil. And the, but the veil covers all of earth it covers the whole thing and nobody can see through the veil and the voice says to me in the way that i love you now now you know that i have always loved you with this this infinite amount of love and that because of this love when you were living all had always been well all always will be well and always all is well because of my love and that's true for you you know that's truth that is true for every beloved human being and they are all beloved And for your parents, and that you now know all suffering ends, and you don't, and you have healing and wholeness. And I could see my parents' faces, and I could see their suffering, and I said, I got another reason, I'll just speed the story along here a little bit, you find that out in the book. And and eventually I say to God, "Um, do I have to stay? And God says, no, you don't have to stay. I want you to stay. And I say, well, can I come back to this state of oneness of being if I go back? God said, yes, you can come back to this oneness of being. And I said, I choose to live my life. And God said, you won't live your life and sent me back. And I was crushed down to the size of my human self and painfully shoved back inside. So, shall I go on, or you want me to stop my monologue?
0: (laughs) No, no, I I would say please, please go on.
1: So... So I get crushed and sent back inside this physical form that I did not understand anymore. It had thingness to it. It was, it was this, this crude, rough, mechanical, painful, everything hurt. I didn't understand pain. I didn't understand thinking or body or breath or heartbeat. I didn't, I just was shoved inside this crushing form that caused me pain. And I, uh, sort of floated my way through the layers of my consciousness as my brain reawakened and my heart started beating and I started feeling physical pain. And then I sort of floated up into my ears and I felt my body being moved, but I didn't really know what a body was and I didn't understand hearing. And so time passed and eventually I floated further to my surface and my partner, Tim, was shaking my body with his hand, screaming unintelligible words at me and helped me stand. And as I finally began to understand language, I heard him say, you were dead. You were dead. If you die, and he's crying, he's crying tears. If you die, I'm gonna die, and a panic. And and you gotta understand this guy. He's not a panic guy. Neither of us are panic guys. We're both super level-headed. We were the best team in dire circumstances. Nobody freaked. Every, both of us, we were we were right where we needed to be to survive. And so he knew, and I stared, and I tried to figure out what on earth was going on to me where had i been and what was i then and what am i now and eventually uh, he got me to pull the rope and the rope came free on the first pull and we descended the 150 feet down the slope and the tent was in the car, which was right across the street, because the mountains are so close to the the parkway. And so I convinced Tim that we shouldn't get in the car to heat ourselves up. We needed to get in the tent first and bring our temperature back up slowly, which we did until we were warm enough and... To get into the car to heat ourselves up and and then in the morning as sun rose we were packing our gear up i didn't know what to say to tim i said very little nothing just essential let's you know car tents that you know whatever was absolutely necessary and as we threw the backpacks in the trunk the warden showed up and caught out and came to us and said, were you the boys who were on the face last night? Yes, sir. We were. Well, we came, I came to see if we needed to get the helicopter to collect your bodies. it's like, wow, Jeez." Mm. So I was a wreck, but I didn't know what had happened to me. And longer story short, we drove back, got arrested, thrown in jail, bribed our way out, totaled the car, split up, split the money we had left over. And Tim took a bus and I hitchhiked back to Bozeman. And within weeks, I left on this national theater tour that I'd been in rehearsal for, for a year, um, theater for theater silences, a, a theater for the deaf out of Bozeman. And 24,000 miles, 64 shows. And I, the car wreck had left me with a stutter. This is a sign language mime theater, so I didn't have to speak. I separated myself from the troupe and I didn't drive in the passenger van. I stayed in the back of the pickup truck with my sleeping bag by myself for the entire trip. And I meditated because I was fortunate enough to, when I was a senior, at a Catholic prep school, learn a form of prayer called centering prayer, that came as a result of the teachings of or visits of um, Suzuki. Um, some of your the zazen um, master was working with the Trappists to reinvigorate their prayer life, and I was a uh, I was blessed to be able to learn, and I found that my only access point and sanity was to try to go back to where I came from. And the only way I knew to do that was by focusing in meditation and prayer and following the light itself, looking for the light itself. And I, you know, I, I spent all that time in meditation. I, I, I came back, I came back to this world. And to me at the time, the world was horrendously ugly. Flat, black and white, two-dimensional, crushing, oppressive. Because I had been to this place of, of being, of light, the world seemed so crude to me, and I was so lost. and I couldn't tell anyone, uh, none of my friends in the theater, I could tell. I, they all knew something had happened to me. They changed my sign name, my my sign language name, um, and added a stutter to the hand motion to indicate me uh, because everybody knew I was stuttering everybody who was speaking knew I could stutter or I was and so I talked as little vocally as I possibly could and just use sign language in which I didn't actually stutter I spent much time in silence and when I go back to I hitchhiked back to Boston another uh, tale and I spent the summer at my parents house and went back to school in the fall and continued my studies in MIME under a fellow named Jody Scalise who is the student of the student of Marcel Marceau who happened to be a yogi and Marcel Marceau taught his students and I was taught yoga in order to practice MIME and my teacher Jody uh, sometime early in class had us access our prana to uh, our, uh, our 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 uh, and our chi uh, to make a chi ball in our hand in a certain asana and move that energy to our other hand, and I found that this was simple for me, that I felt this I'd never felt it before, and I was reading Paramahansa Yogananda and I came across some description of Kriya Yoga and I integrated that practice, into my meditation practice, and also into my yoga practice of moving my energy and internal, this passion, a kind of yoga practice of moving my, my mind and my breath without language. Like I use language in my meditation till the language falls away. But in my yoga practice, I use only my body as my tool and my breath and move my mind through my physical body in order to find and access my subtle body. And I've been practicing that these things for 40 years in secret I because who's gonna who's gonna believe me so so I I uh I was going to be an architect in my father's firm that's what I was going to do I've been working in construction all the way through college as an English major as a communicator and uh was going to go to graduate school in architecture just like my sister at the same school um and eventually got accepted there and I decided it against it. And I instead applied, I started hanging out at the Trappist monastery, uh, hanging out with uh, Theophane Boyd, the, who was, uh, people may know the name Thomas Keating, the abbot there. Um, Theophane was the guest master and the novitiate master. And I, I thought very seriously about going to the monastery because the, the radiance of the, of certain individuals uh, who had mystical divine access to the oneness of being who've had unitive experiences in Christian language were is visible to me i could see these people i could see what people say they see their aura these these men radiated i saw through their eyes the the depth of their souls and i knew that they could see me and so i i began this relationship there and um but i decided that sex was great <laughs> and, um, and i just like i'm gonna put this off and so i decided to apply to graduate school and i interviewed um at harvard yale and princeton in their in divinity school and i i got into yale and i decided to go there and study mysticism which for which they did not have a, a course and so with the dean of students i Um, created my independent study that I was going to study mysticism uh, across using the tools of of the whole university um, and create my own independent study, which she oversaw for three years. And thank God uh, for Joan Forsberg. Anyway, so that's what I did. And um, I, I, I kept my secret. All through those years I meditated, I practiced yoga, I studied mysticism, I studied contemplation because I figured I had a I must have a peer group. I had to have a peer group. I was not. I could I felt alone. I didn't know anybody who was like me plus you know I wasn't talking about it so nobody knew but I could see people. I could see their I could see their light and I only the monks I ever saw Carried it to the strength that I knew that the mystics did, and so I studied the mystics and I tried to understand their language to create concepts upon which I could hang metaphorically and symbolically my experience, so I could think about the damn thing, and 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 grasp somehow uh, a a way to process what had happened to me, and so I, um, I uh, got talked into. Becoming a United Church of Christ clergy person by this same dean, who was a UCC, and they were the first to ordain women, first to ordain gay people, um, lesbians, and everybody. You know, everybody's welcome. So I'm I'm a United Church of Christ minister, and that happened because the dean talked me into it. I had decided that I was probably going to become a professor and I was going to be applying for a doctoral program and the study of mysticism uh, as a crossover between Islam, Christianity, and Buddhism in, the, in the Southeast Asia, because it, 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 I came across this, this notion that in the place of unitive experience, Satori, Nirvana, Heaven, whatever name you want to call it, when the self is no longer present because the mind, the brain is not there, only uh, the closer one rises into the divine oneness of being, the less self-understanding there is with a small s, and the greater self-understanding there is with a capital S. And and that I I, I thought I I can make I can make a I can make a living I got c- to I got to eat, uh, I I can make a living working in this area but the Dean talked me into uh, becoming ordained and so I got ordained and I got a job I made a deal with God I'd do this ministry thing for three years and and if at the end of it, and I got recruited to three year a three-year gig. I made this deal. Oh, I'll do this for three years. Like a week later, I get I, I, out of the blue. I, I get Someone hears me preach somewhere, and he invites me to a three-year gig. So I get this three-year gig, and at the end of which I'm like, okay, this has been great. Work with the homeless, work with the youth. Um, but no, I'm going to be a professor. But then my wife gets pregnant. And or we get pregnant and now I got to have a job. I can't go off and do a Ph.D. now. And her she was working in the medical school at Yale, um, probably the public health uh, doing major research. And she's you know, her grants run out and, uh, you know, i have got to get a job. And so I do. And I stay in the church for a total of 18 years. Um, at the end of which there was this embezzlement. I, I live in a, a, a Booth Bay Harbor, Maine, which is a resort town. And there was an embezzlement at the at the church that predated my arrival. There'd been two embezzlements, as it turns out. The one that really predated my arrival by a decade. And the one that followed it, protected by those embezzlers who are now in positions of power in the church, protecting this new embezzler. Um, and so it was a hell time. Um, this super swanky, buttoned down, bow tied boat. Uh, blue bloody main sort of um, congregation that had metaphorically demons running it. And um, terrible, wonderful place. And after eight years, we cracked the case with new, we cracked the case. And the church power st- be tried to destroy me. It's a, It's in another book that the church eventually wrote um about it about included that in their history and uh they tried to ruin me financially and personally and professionally tried to defrock me tried to run me out of town it was pretty bad and uh and and then in the end we cracked the case and when it was all over and i was totally burned out on ministry uh as you can imagine right. i uh some guy comes up to me on a Sunday morning. Meanwhile, okay, so I've been writing sermons. I write sermons for, I've been writing, I, I had 150 sermons published with this online, now online journal called Homiletics, which is this national um, sermon preparation journal for mainline clergy. And I you know, I and I had one of those sermons that I wrote for them and for my congregation. And you know, it's getting published, and I'm going to preach it. And as I'm w- walking up into the pulpit, this deacon comes up to me and says, Peter, you know, we've been talking, um, deacons and the trustees, cause there was a, there was a washing out of the church too. the, the, the demons actually walked out of the congregation on the Sunday that before Easter, when I revealed this whole thing I, and they stood up and they walked out in front of everybody. And, um, the weeks later, this deacon comes up to me and says, we treated you so terribly. How did you endure? And I said to myself, ah, how did you endure? He said, "I'm sorry. How did you endure? You must have a lot of faith to have put up with what we did to you." And I thought to myself, "I don't have a, uh, I don't have any faith at all. I have no belief in God. I'm not really. I use Christianity as a as a mechanism and tool for linguistic construction to create communication of the divine, the ineffable divine, to a segment of the population of humanity, who who under who can understand divine love." but I am not really a Christian. I don't have any belief. Jesus died and rose, Yeah, I have no problem with that at all. That's likely physics. It's gotta be physics. If it happened, it's physics, it's not magic. God isn't magic, there's no magic in this. It's mystery for sure, but it's reality. And I've been there. And this world, to me, this world is the unreal place. This is the fake place. This is the place um, where I feel like I'm a downloaded uh, portion of my software that exists in the cloud. And I live inside this physical form like some sort of AI robotic biology. And I, I... And this guy says to me, you must have a lot of faith. And I think, I don't have any faith at all. I got up in the pulpit. I thought, I got to tell these people. I I kept a secret for 20 years. My wife knew. I told her on the night before we got married. I told uh, another friend or two. But I knew that no one actually understood me. I, I, I knew that there was no way they could comprehend what I had seen. Is there? everybody here is, is, even with glimpses of the divine, even here I am blind. I'm blind here. Even though I, I wasn't blind when I was dead, I know I'm blind. I know everybody's uh, as, at least as blind as I am. And so I get in the pulpit and I say to the congregation, hey, look, I'm not going to preach a sermon today. I'm going to tell you that I've been lying to you from the pulpit since the day you hired me and i am not a believer I, I i have no faith i don't believe in culture i don't believe in politics i don't believe in finance i don't believe in language i don't believe in my body i have no doubt that god is real i have no you you cannot i i'm i i have because i have no belief i have no doubt I know God is real, and that's what I told them. And I came out to the congregation tearfully, uh, but finally I, I told. And then within like a week, six other people in my t- tiny coastal town came up to me and whispered to me, me too. You know, I got dragged back in the ambulance by those electrical paddles. Or you know they shot me up with something in the hospital, and I came back too. And I started to think to myself, I am not alone. I'm not alone.
0: And people started coming forward to you, and then you realizing that you're not alone. Something in this world then must have began to open up a little bit more for you.
1: Yes, it did. I I found out that I was not the anomaly that I thought I might be. Mm. And eventually, uh, over the years, I discovered the International Association of Near-Death Studies and um, the group that's an acronym near and I discovered online in Facebook that there are millions of us, that there are 10 million near-death experiencers in the United States alone right now, according to Pim von Lommel, who's a, a, I think he's a surgeon in Europe. Uh, he's a, a near-death experience researcher. And there's 10 million of us. And he says, uh, Van Lommel says that this is all driven by cardiac care that began to develop in the 1960s when we began as as a, a species in large numbers bringing people back from the dead. And now, here it is 50 years later, and the technologies, the scientific technologies of bringing people back from the dead, either chemically or um, uh, with electricity, you know, the paddles, is global. And there are, there are tens of millions of us everywhere. And now, for the first time in the history of the world, science is driving spirituality. And I think that's the most radical thing that has ever happened. Because you know, you, you get in in the the four or five that I can think of that were in the in the scriptures, the the Bible, you get Elisha and the widow's son, you get Jesus and the and the widow's son, and you get Jesus and Lazarus and uh, Peter and Aeneas and Ukitz uh, and Paul. So you get like five and those were so notable. That they made it into the Bible. You know, that's a 4,000-year-old, that's a 3,000-year-old document. So there's like only five. And now there are 10 million in the United States. And I, it's, a, it, it's, like, it's like God has new voice here. Mm. I, I came back as the day that I came back, I knew that I had a purpose. And I knew that my purpose was to be a messenger, and the messenger was to speak, but I didn't have any words at all. I didn't know what to say or how to say it, and I knew that words weren't even the thing that I should speak. It's really the 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 practice of meditation um, and contemplation allows the practitioner to get out of the way of the divine light and let the light speak for itself. And when we do that, when we practice our prayer life our meditation life our our qigong or whatever we're doing whatever form we take when we practice getting out of the way is when we become portals individually to the divine light of heaven and now there are 10 million of us who just naturally have this access and that's on top of the tens and tens of millions of human beings who who um, have had some kind of divine experience in their life where there's been some kind of Christians call it a conversion or a born again. But, you know, there's lots of language for that where, you know, that the divine has touched you or an angel spoke to you and you can't unknow that. Right. You can't. Right. And so, so and on top of all of that, every single human beings, with maybe the exception of sociopaths and psychopaths, maybe. I mean, I'm not a psychologist, but but every human being has the capacity to love and be loved. It's like built into us. It's, it's built into the temple of our heart, access to the divine love itself. And there's this whole spectrum of experience of spirituality here that that is now, in, in my thinking, being propelled forward by medical science and the near-death community of my tribe. And, and now for the first time in history, we're talking to each other. We know, I, you know people in Tokyo and Istanbul and Melbourne and um, South Africa, all over the world. We're all going across and coming back. And my question, I have a question for the community. And the question is, is the message love? That's the message I got. That's mm-hmm. the message I got. Is, does, do we all come back with that? Or am I some kind of kook?
0: <laughs> well, and I want to ask you a question, and I'm not sure if I already have a sense of what the answer may be, but when you came back and the Creator said, you won't live your life, um, I guess I want to ask, what does that mean? But is it, a, is it a sense that you're not going to live your life, you're going to just be is it a sense of instead of living it's so hard to put into words but it's not that you're going to live your life but that when you return that you will be what you experience there or that you will be who and what your true essence is
1: wow i have never framed that out loud not once not ever nobody's ever said that to me and uh I've always I've always framed it as I, I you know I didn't become an architect I became a, a a the one who seeks the seeker but I never framed it the way you reframed it but really that's closer to the truth of it mm-hmm. that I uh, because because it's it's the experience of the beingness of the divine that drives my entire life and, and so I, I I live this life knowing that I'm not a human being. There's not a moment that goes by in my life that I don't know that. I know where I'm from. I know where I'm going. I know what I am. And I live in this mask of, of flesh. And it's really like when I said that most of me is still over there, my eye, most of my eye is still over there. I can't. The eye that sees myself, I see myself, there was this this, uh, novel called um, Death Comes for the Archbishop by this American author, Willa Catha. And and in the end, at the end of the book, it's a kind of a transcendentalist novel. And at the end of the book, the bishop, the old bishop is lying in his deathbed in his chamber, having lived a, a, a difficult and good life. And he is described, Katha describes him as sitting inside his head, looking out through his eyes at the at the world. And that's how it is for me. I'm inside myself looking out and I am. The most important thing to me is beingness, not living. Living seems to be incidental to me. And I've made tons of choices in my life that and and I, I, I guess the biggest one is financial. Um, I, I chose, I have not pursued money. I'm a smart guy from a smart family. Everybody makes money. I just don't care. I sure I wanna be, I want to be, you know, have medical access to healthcare, and I wanna be able to travel and do the, the middle-class things that I'm able to do, but I, but that's never been the most important thing. Only one thing's important to me, and that is seeking heaven first. Um, Being matters more than living. Hmm. Thank you. Thank you, April,
0: for saying that. You're welcome. Well, I love that. I love what you just said, too. And I think, um, you know, there's a part of me personally that's understanding that more and more uh, this past year um on a personal level so I get it and uh, I didn't have to die which is good <laughs> which is good I don't recommend it <laughs> yeah. it's no fun yeah i'd rather rather not but um yeah so just uh switching gears here before we wrap up a little bit um you know you are going to be at the afterlife awareness conference on Friday you are giving a talk at the 330 spot which mm-hmm. uh, we are going to be recording it's a part of our live stream and you're going to be talking about the bio Bible through the lens of near death experience. Um, so, I was wondering if you just want to share a little tidbit about how you incorporate the two.
1: Sure. So, um, there are basically two schools of thought on the way the Bible works. One is the literalist interpretation, and that is that the planet is you know, 8,000 years old, et cetera, et cetera. Uh, the other uh, is sort of the Yale Harvard sort of teaching that of using historical critical analysis. And so it uses the ideas that you look at the texts from a more scientific point of view in the context of the communities in which they were written, looking at the tangent literature that's available from the same time period, defining what words mean, understanding mythology and myth, um, et cetera, et cetera. So that's kind of the construct where I start from, which is that the Bible, although has historical record um, within it, it's not a scientific book; it's a metaphoric book, it's a symbolic book, it's a mythological book that can be used as a tool to strip away the false self in order to access the divine directly. And that the the teachings of Jesus, in particular, because I became a you know a theologian of Jesus's writings because I'm working in the in Christianity, uh, that the, the the teachings uh, we can parse apart his parables and see them from a different perspective uh, of the divine light. And he talks a lot about light, he talks a lot about love. Um, So the peek I'm going to give is this, is that uh, we'll move rapidly through a deconstruction of the texts as literalist and a reconstruction of them through the lens. Of near-death experience recognizing that all language about god is metaphoric and symbolic including and especially the bible and that every human being has access to the temple inside their heart the um we're going to pull out parts of the bible that can help people understand their christianity mystically and that you don't have to have a near-death experience and i don't recommend it because (laughs) i don't because you know i i uh yeah um, because you're built that way anyway. You're built for spirituality, and the Bible. If if you want to use the Bible as a tool for for Western exploration of your spirituality, then go right ahead. Because I know it works. Because I've done that. I chose not to be a Hindu or or a a, a Muslim or, a, or or Jewish because I stayed within the context of a of my community, of um, language and theology, and found the divine there. And I'll leave. I'll leave you with one word. I had this teacher, uh, Rabbi Harry Skye, and uh, Harry told me once that the word that's translated as Lord, L capital L O R D in the Hebrew Scriptures, in English, um, is actually the word Adonai, and Adonai means beloved.
0: Beautiful. Thank you, yeah. Peter. Thank you so much. And you know, I I know that. Trying to put these experiences into the language that we have here is really, really impossible. But you have done such a beautiful job through your books, through this conversation, to really allow your experience to come through with the language that we have to explain it. So um, really, really beautiful. Thank you so much. Um, I really look forward to meeting you in person, and I'm really hoping that I get to um, be in the room filming um, your talk because it just sounds really, really interesting to me. And for those of you who would like to have a discount um, to the, Afterlife Awareness Conference live stream, you can go to the page path11productions.com and select on the Afterlife Awareness live stream and type in the code podcast10 for 10% off. So, Peter, thank you again so much. I look forward again to meeting you in Salt Lake City, Utah. Can't wait. It's coming up soon. And um, we hope to have you back again.
1: Thanks, April. I, I appreciate having the opportunity to be a mouthpiece for the divine and and thank you so much for being a kind listener because I, you know, uh, that was a long monologue and I and I'm sorry that uh, that I didn't give you more space <laughs> um, but it's just uh, the way that I'm used.
0: Yeah, and to be honest, there really there's no there really weren't many questions that needed to be asked. You know when we're really practicing. Truly and understanding that state of being, it's just, you know, being in in the story, being in the story with you, living it, you know,
1: always my hope. Thank you.
0: Yes. All right. Thanks, Peter. Take care.
1: Peace to you all.
0: Thanks for listening to the path 11 podcast today. I hope you all enjoyed this show. And if you haven't checked out our Patreon page, I'd like you to do so because we are going to start putting some content over there. That is only for our Patreon subscribers. You can get content for as little as donating a dollar a month, and it could just be a one-time donation. We have other freebies over there that you can get depending upon how much you would like to donate. And again, it could be a one-time donation or you can continue to keep your subscription on a monthly basis at that donation level, but I just put my MBT immersive experience, which was a four day, four day intensive meditation training in Tennessee with physicist Tom Campbell. I was listening to binaural beats, going to altered states of consciousness, having out of body experiences and life changing experiences that I was able to bring back uh, for myself, for my clients, for my friends that was just out of this world. So if you would like to listen to that, I'd like you to head on over to path11podcast.com. You're going to see an orange button that says Patreon. Become a Patreon today, and you can have access to that podcast. And I would like to remind you to head on over to path11productions.com and check out the membership that we have for the Afterlife Awareness Conference. We have over 25 hours of footage with amazing speakers like William Buhlman, Thomas John, Terry Daniel, Suzanne Geisman, Suzanne Northrup, Linda Fitch, uh, Austin Wells, just a few people. Uh, to name off that were amazing. These workshops are just so valuable. So I think that you would really enjoy it. It's also a great thing to think about to maybe give the gift to somebody who is struggling with grief. If you are looking for resources, this is a great conference to send people to to check out. And thanks again for listening today.